All right, well, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your blessing, particularly of sending the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to be our Savior. We thank you for your love in sending him. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your love in coming into the world and sacrificing yourself for our sins and uniting yourself to us forever in a human nature. We thank you that you've risen from the dead and you reign on high as our king and our eternal high priest. Thank you that even as we pray, you ever live to make intercession for us and that you have made a perfect sacrifice for our sins so that we can know that every time we sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for these glorious blessings and also the peace we have with you, Father, and the standing in your favor and the hope of glory. These things are beyond our comprehension, but we thank you for them again this morning. And we come with hearts of gratitude and reverence. And even where we are weak and distracted, burdened by sin and burdened by trials, yet we know that you are merciful to us in our weakness. And we pray that you would draw near to us and minister to us through your word, even this morning in this class, as well as throughout the rest of our time of worship and fellowship today. We pray that this would be a market day for our souls, that we would just be fed richly, with the abundance of your word and by the power of your spirit that he would nourish and strengthen us and help us to grow this morning and throughout the day. And Lord, we pray that you would also be glorified, that you'd be honored before our eyes, before the eyes of our hearts, that we would be filled with a greater sense of reverence and awe and love and affection and wonder at who you are and what you have done for us as a result of worshiping you this morning. And even today, as we dive into Romans 7, please open this passage up and to our hearts. Please open our hearts up to understand it and accept it. And let it minister to us, we pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right, so Romans seven thirteen through 25. We're going to tackle this a little bit different than we have other passages, and you'll see what I mean. But I just want to start again with just a review. The introduction of the book, Paul tells the Romans he wants to come and preach the gospel to them because it revealed a righteousness from God by which everyone who believed could be saved. And then in the next section, he explains why everyone needs this saving righteousness revealed in the gospel, because they are under God's wrath for their unrighteousness. And then, of course, in Romans 3, 21 through 31, he explains sort of a summary of the gospel, that the gospel reveals a righteousness which is given to us by God as a gracious gift, and that it's based on Christ's atoning sacrifice And it's given to every sinner who simply believes in him so that we are justified by faith apart from our works. Uh, Chapter 4, he demonstrates this principle of justification by faith apart from works from the Old Testament by opening up Genesis 15, 6. In Romans 5, he talks about how a justified person also possesses other blessings, peace, grace, joy, a hope of future glory, And talks about how this is because of the fact that Jesus, as the second Adam, his obedience overcame the consequences of the first Adam's sin. So where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And then we looked at chapter 6, and I'm just lumping together chapter 6, 1 through 7, 6. And because in this section, Paul explained that those who are justified by grace through faith in Christ can't continue to live in sin because, number one, they have died to sin and lived to God. Number two, they've been set free from slavery to sin and become slaves to God. And number three, they have been released from the old covenant law, which aroused their flesh to sin, and have been joined to Christ in the new covenant to serve him by the Spirit. And then in, we, do, we began looking at Romans 7 last week, particularly 7, 7 through 12, where Paul 
answers a potential objection to his statement in verse 5 of this section where he said that he talked about the passions of the flesh being aroused or awakened by the law to commit sin and he anticipated an objection does that mean that you're saying paul that the law is sinful and he said no by no means the problem is not the law the problem is the sinful passions of the flesh the law is holy and just and good and that leads us to today and what he's going to do in this passage if you think about it in the broader context what this famous passage is really accomplishing is addressing another potential objection on this same subject you know paul did what you were saying what you're saying about the law arousing the passions of our flesh does that does that mean that the law is sinful or that the law does something bad and that's really what this extended passage that or section that we're looking at is seeking to answer okay so that just puts it in context and shows you where we're headed with the flow of the book but last week you might remember that i actually skipped over a particular slide and i said ah we don't have time to cover this we're gonna have to come back to it next week and i I, that's what i want to start out by doing because one thing that is very interesting is if you look at chapter 7 and if you start in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 and you start flowing going through the flow of the passage and this has really been true for quite some time he's using second person pronouns likewise my brothers verse 4 you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead while we were living in the flesh so now he's now it's a first person plural our sinful passions were at work in our members so and this is really throughout this first part of the book he's talked about well especially starting in chapter six but he's talked about uh these things collectively and particularly with respect to them as christians or you all of you as christians but then um when you get to chapter 7 verse 7 you see that he switches to a first person pronouns okay so he says if it had not been for the law i would not have known sin for i would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, verse 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once a lot. So do you see, he begins talking about himself. And there's this switch to first person pronouns, I and me, in verses 7 through 23. And it runs, like I said, it runs all the way through the end of the chapter, this first person pronoun where he's talking about, he's talking Um, as if he's referring to himself and his own experience and this leads to this question and if you were to crack open any commentary on romans a good exegetical commentary you would see a long discussion about this issue right here when paul begins to use these first person pronouns i and me in verses 7 through 23 does this mean he's describing his own experience all right And there have been several answers to this question, and I'll show you why. So the first option is the most obvious and intuitive to all of us, and that is that, yes, Paul is speaking of his own personal experience, right? But, of course, he's doing that to, in in a way, describe an experience that's common to all people, right? So he's talking about his own experience, but with the understanding that this is going to apply to the common human experience. And that's probably how most of us have read naturally this passage throughout the years. This is the most common view for obvious reasons, because that's how, if if he says, if he starts talking about I and me and my, well, that's how you would naturally read it, right? That he's referring to his own experience. But of course, that you relate to it because it's an experience that we all have, right? 
But if you start thinking about it, it does make certain parts of the passage difficult. So Paul is a Jew, right? He grew up uh, in a Jewish context. In fact, you know, he described himself in Philippians chapter 3 as a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was born in the most Jewish of all Jewish contexts and uh, to, to an extent. Um, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was born or he lived in Tarsus, but he studied under Gamaliel, right? He became a Pharisee. But if you notice in verse 9, for instance, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. You go, you know, at what point in your life, Paul, were you apart from the law? At what point did you not, were you not taught the law? Did you not know the law, right? And so while this is the most common way of understanding the passage, because it's most natural, he starts talking about I, me, my, that he's talking about his own experience. And yet it does make parts of the passage difficult to understand. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive and I died. Well, at what time, Paul, did you not know the commandments of God? You're probably taught them from the earliest age. Just who do you see? This is it's understandable why it's the most common, but you can also understand why people have taken a second look at the passage and thought, well, maybe there's a different way of understanding this. Okay? And it's important that we answer this question because it's gonna determine in some ways how you interpret. The whole rest of the passage, right? So there have been other options. Another option is that many have seen Paul as speaking as Adam. and dis- In other words, as a descendant of Adam, but speaking as if he were Adam and describing Adam's experience. And that the experience he's describing is that of the fall. And this, this view actually has an, a pretty ancient pedigree. It goes back to even some of the church fathers who viewed the passage this way. And it's become very popular among many contemporary scholars, even in Orthodox evangelical circles. That, you know, when Paul talks about at one time not having the law and then, then the command coming and him dying as a result, that he's describing you know, the experience of humanity from the perspective of Adam. Another option, which actually makes a little bit more sense because of the command he cites, is one of the Ten Commandments. So you think, well, Adam never received the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, there's a sense in which he had the work of the law written on his heart, like all humanity, but when did he ever receive, you know, the command, you shall not covet? Ah, but Israel did. I mean, these were the, the Ten Commandments were given to the nation of Israel. So perhaps Paul is speaking as Israel. You know, he is an Israelite and he's describing the experience of the nation of Israel here, right? That at one time they didn't have the law, but then they received the law of God at Mount Sinai and then they died, right? Because it exposed their sin and brought them under condemnation. So Some have suggested that Paul is speaking as Israel and describing their experience of receiving the old covenant law. And many interpreters throughout history have held this view as well. And then there's probably another view that I think would be less thought through, but it's sort of, oh no, Paul's not describing anyone's experience in particular. It's just, he's describing the experience of everybody in general. The problem with that is that that really makes little sense because he's talking about receiving explicit commands. And particularly, he talks about receiving the command, you shall not covet. So that wouldn't describe everyone in general. It's clearly either him or, you know, perhaps option three. But this, in my view, makes little sense, while these other views might be a little bit more understandable. I think still that option one is the best. But I have to say that I, I don't rule out when you read through this passage that at times Paul may be speaking about experiences that go beyond just his own personal experience, perhaps to the experience of his people, Israel, given that he is talking about the old covenant law. I'm not sure about that. It's a very difficult interpretive question, but I, gen- I 
I find it difficult to move away from the interpretation that when Paul says, I, me, my, that he is talking about his own experience. But there are times, I have to admit, when you look at the text and you're like, it's hard to see how that would have been Paul's experience. And so I'm not, I don't rule out option three that at times maybe he is speaking beyond his own experience to describing, you know, the experience of his people. So any questions on that before we move forward? That is a difficult one. I, I just want you to be aware of that because it does, it is important to interpreting the passage. All right, yeah, Mom. It just reminds me of what you said about prophecies. Some of them are meant right for that time, mm-hmm. and then right alongside it will be a prophecy meant mm-hmm. for the future, and they'll be right together, so it can be confusing. Maybe that's the case here, too, that he had both things in mind. Yeah, yeah I mean, I... It's difficult. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that in general we should just re- take it in its most natural, straightforward way as Paul's personal experience. But there's no doubt there are things about it that you think, okay, is he talking about his personal experience? Or is perhaps he's speaking about beyond that to the experience of his people? I, I don't know. Janelle? Well, so if you're a Pharisee, you don't actually see your sin, Right? So he's doing all those rules and thinking he's all that. And so he doesn't actually see the commandment and the sin until until later on, right? Well, that would be a possible way of understanding, like verse 9, that maybe what he's saying is, of course, he always knew the commandments. But did he, yeah, but did he really know them, you know, (laughs) like... Maybe at some point it dawned on him what you shall not covet really meant, you know. That's possible. Right. I, that is possible. Uh, he could be speaking about, you know, a sort of deeper experience of the commandments. It's just that it's difficult because he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came. And so can you interpret that that way? Perhaps. But So my other question is, whether you pick option one or option three, what is the matter? Yeah, it, it matters because if he is, if he's, That's harsh. Yeah, if he's speaking of his own experience, uh-huh. right, then we'll see later on that, that this particular interpretive decision bears on later interpretive decisions. All the way through the passage, if he's speaking about himself, that matters. If he isn't speaking about himself, if he's speaking you know, as if he were Israel, then that would affect the rest of how you interpret the rest of the passage too. So it does matter. I mean, in the bigger picture of things, you know, there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because the point still remains relatively the same, right? So that's why when you see stuff like this, I don't want you to think, oh, see, who can ever understand the Bible because it's just so complicated? Well, no, it's just that the specific meaning of certain passages might be difficult to understand, but the general point and teaching of the passage remains fairly clear. Are you going to get to those? Yeah, we're going to get to there. Whether it happens today, right. Whether it happens today or it's next week, that, that remains to be seen. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? Any other questions? Yeah. <laughs> Your question, Nicodemus knew the law. Yeah. But when he talked with Christ and Christ said, You have to be born again, right. something happened to him that he had not experienced, even though he knew the law. So I, I can right. see where Janelle's coming from. Oh, no, I, I can too. I think that's a fair point. Yeah. I mean, it could be that he's speaking of that, that that's what he means. It's just it is difficult language to understand if if it is Paul speaking. Um, but it, it could be. I mean, that is a that's a that's a, a possible understanding. I think that's kind of how you naturally read it. Like when I have read it over the years, I've sort of thought, well, maybe what he's saying is kind of like you know a kid growing up in church you know or you always hear the command but then at some point it sort of sinks in and you go oh it could be that where it used to be like 
the law for him by the Pharisee was like, hey, that's, that's why I'm so good. Yeah. Right. Had a lot of in that paradigm shift in his mind. Right. It's like, no way. I could really see who I am now. Right. But that was so far past. That, was, that wasn't until <clears throat> yeah. the road. To... Yeah, because when you read Philippians 3, he talks about his experience before he was saved. And he talks about how, hey, with respect to the law, I was blameless, right? He clearly viewed himself as having kept the law until at some point he became convicted, right, of his sin, for sure. Yeah. All right, well, let's, let's move forward. And you can always come back if things come back to your mind. Let's uh, move to Romans 7.13, if someone wouldn't mind reading that, just so we have it in our ears. 7.13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might be, become sinful beyond measure. All right. Just uh, summarizing here, we can see that what Paul's doing is he's answering another potential objection to something that he had said about the law in the previous section. So you see the question there? Did that which is good then bring death to me? That's the question. So he's, he's anticipating that as an objection to something that he had said in the previous section. Okay, So that's, he's going to answer that objection like he's been doing all the way through. This is why we talk about a diatribe, right? interacting with a sort of imaginary opponent and answering potential questions and objections, right? This phrase, did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, if you look back in verse 11, right, you can see what he's talking about. In verse 11, he said, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me, right? So that's what led to this objection. Did that which is good then? And what is the good thing? The commandment, the law, right? Did that which is good then bring death to me? So Paul had said that sin had killed him through the law. But then in the next verse, right? Verse 12, he said, The law is holy and the commandment is holy, just, and good. And so he's anticipating but if sin took up the law and killed me with it, is Paul saying that something good, the law, did something evil, killed him? So you see the, the potential objection that he's raising? Did that which is good, the law of God, bring death to me, do something evil? And... His answer, like always, is by no means, right? This emphatic negation in the Greek. I mentioned this before. Remember, in English, a double negative sort of cancels itself out. But in Greek, they would pile up negatives to make it more emphatic. No, no, a thousand times no, absolutely not. That's, that's what he's saying here. And then you say, okay, well, how is it not, you know, how is that objection not valid? You said that sin killed you through the law. Well, he's saying, yeah, but it was sin, not the law that was responsible for killing me, right? It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Yes, the law was a means through which I came under the command, the condemnation and death, the penalty of death, but it wasn't the law that killed me ultimately. Not in, it wasn't the law that was responsible for killing me. It was my own sin, right? So it was, and I think when he talks about sin here, he's talking about sin as if it lived in him, right? So this is where you hear the language of remaining sin. Have you guys heard that language, right? Remaining sin. But what are we talking about? I think we're talking about our, what we call our sinful nature, right? That part of us that as believers has not yet been redeemed. So we don't talk about our sinful nature as something that is, out, that is that we're not responsible for. I don't know what that was. That was sin. That wasn't me, right? No, it was you. It's that part of you that is yet unredeemed, right? Your remaining corruption, your sinful nature. It's still you doing it. You're responsible for it. And he's saying, look, it was sin. It was my sinful nature, not the law 
the law is good, uh, which was responsible for the evil thing, for killing me. And you understand what he's talking about, because when you hear a command, there's nothing wrong with command, but you understand that your own sinful nature loves to break commands. And therefore, when it hears a command, don't do this, uh, immediately you want to do it, and then you do it. And so the command then says, ah, see, you're now guilty, and now you're under the penalty of death because the wages of sin is death. But it wasn't the command's fault for killing you, right? It was your own sin. That's what he's saying. It's sin. It's my own sinful nature that's responsible for the evil thing, not the law. So that's the answer to the question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin. Yes, the law was part of it. It was an instrument through which it happened. But it was sin that was responsible for the evil thing. And then he adds, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So this is a point that Paul's actually made throughout the letter and he makes it in other letters as well that the law of God ends up showing the sinfulness of man, like making our sin more obvious, right? So if you let's turn to a few passages here in Romans. If you turn back to Romans 4, verse 15, look what he says. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So he's not saying that we couldn't commit sin before God gave his commands. Because in Romans 2, he makes the point, you know, the work of the law is written on man's heart, right? So that even those who don't have the written law, their own conscience still testifies against them that they're guilty, right? But his point is that when you do have commands, just in our natural condition, if you're given more commands... It increases wrath because it just shows you that it makes you such that you're actually breaking explicit commands. So there's a difference between sin in a general way and transgression, which is breaking explicit commands. So the more explicit commands you have, the more judgment, right? Because now you're responsible for breaking explicit commands that God has given. Okay, so the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Or go forward to chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, it says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So his point was, he goes on to say in verse 14, Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So he's saying, yes, it's true. You can't, you're not convicted of a sin, of a sin when you don't have a law, that, that when you didn't have a command telling you not to do it. And yet sin was still in the world between Adam and Moses and death reigned. Why? Well, because Adam's sin counted for you, right? But you see that before the law was given, it says sin is not counted where there is no law. But then look over at... Uh, a little later in the chapter, verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, right? So law is given, and now you have more broken laws, and more transgressions, and more wrath, you see? So this is something that he has emphasized throughout the book. In fact, one more text, if you go back to Romans 3.20, he says... For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law tells you, shows you even more how sinful you are, right? It doesn't, when you receive the law, the law in and of itself isn't able to make you holy, is it? Right? In your sinful condition, before you were saved, if someone just came along and gave you a copy of the Ten Commandments, would that make you more holy? No. But one thing it would do was show you just how sinful you are, right? And, and, and make you more liable because now you know these things are wrong and you're explicitly breaking it. So you see, this is the point. 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, right? That when the law came in, it increased the trespass, because now you had explicit commands that you were breaking. All right? John Bunyan in his Pilgrim's Progress, some of you guys might remember this. This is one of the opening scenes where he gives this illustration or a, a symbolic picture of the function of the law. And he says, you know, he walks into a room and it's a dusty room, just dust everywhere, right? Some of you ladies are like, ah, oh, I hate dust. <laughs> and it's dusty. And so a person takes out a broom. And Bunyan, in Bunyan's parable, the, the broom is a picture of the law. And the dust is a picture of sin. And he says, when you take that broom to the dust, what does it do? It just stirs it up all the more. So the whole room is filled with dust. And you're like, ah. And he's saying that's what the law does, right? It stirs up sin. It makes it more odious and more obvious, right? But it takes the water, he says, the water of the Spirit, to cleanse away the, the dust, right? And that's a picture of how we need Christ and we need the Spirit to actually sanctify, right? So... This is, I think, what he's saying, that in answer to this objection, this was the real purpose of the law. It's not that the law did anything bad. It's just that the law had a one function of showing the sinfulness of sin. Okay, any questions on that before we move forward? Now, you think, wait, aren't we going to get into the text? Yes, we are. So when I say get into the text... I'm talking about this incredible passage in Romans 7, beginning in verse 13 or 14, all the way through where, you know, he talks about, I am a flesh, shoulder sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, right? That passage that you're probably familiar with. I think I mentioned this before, but at my previous church, there was a young man who was just one of those Eeyores of the spiritual world, you know? <laughs> and he had, I think, seven, Romans seven fifteen or something uh, on his license plate, right? I'm thinking, that's not the, you know, the sort of slogan of your life that you want. Like, I do the, do not do the things that I want, but the things I do not want to do, I do, you know? You're like, well, better to have, you know, like Romans 8, 1 or something, you know? Like, there is no condemnation for those, but but we all understand, there's a sense in which we're fascinated with this passage because it really resonates, right, with our own spiritual experience. I want to do God's law, but often I don't do it. But there is something that we really have to figure out before we dive into this, right? So, first of all, if you assume, and I think we should, that Paul is speaking about his own personal experience. See, this is what I was saying, Janelle. If, if we've already settled that, that he is speaking of his own experience, which I established, I think, in the last interpretive question, although I pointed out that it's a difficult question, but if he is speaking about his own experience, then we must determine whether he's speaking about his experience as a believer or as an unbeliever. Because there's a sense in which, as you read through this text, you could see it either way. Maybe he's speaking about his experience, yes, but his experience before he was saved, right? I, the things I do, don't want to do, I do. I'm sold, I'm in bondage to sin, he said. You know, I'm sold, uh, what does he say? I am a flesh, sold under sin. Or, you could see it as speaking... Uh, as him speaking about his experience as a believer, right? Um, I delight in the law in my inward man, but I don't, I don't do it. So this is a, a very important question. Before we dive into this passage, if he's speaking about his own experience, is he speaking about his experience before he was saved, before he was converted, or is he speaking about his experience as a regenerate man, right? Right now, Paul's life as a Christian. Okay, now let me just point out, this is a very difficult question. And there are orthodox, evangelical, or I should better say orthodox scholars who have taken both positions throughout church history, right? So, 
This is just an example. Here are a bunch of scholars who say that Paul was speaking of his experience as an unbeliever. In the early church, the, the Greek fathers famously held this position. Many of the, the well-known Greek fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, and Basil of Caesarea, and on and on. Very orthodox on many issues. And then you have you know reform scholars like Hermann Ritterboss, uh, Douglas Moo has one of the great commentaries from an evangelical Baptist perspective. Anthony Hokema, a famous Dutch Reformed theologian. Dennis Johnson, a professor over at Westminster. Martin Lloyd-Jones, etc. These were all people who viewed this passage as speaking of Paul's experience as an unbeliever. And on the other side, you got a bunch of great scholars who say that he's speaking of his experience as a believer. Going back to Augustine and many of the Reformers and the Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge, John Murray, uh, more modern theologians that you're aware of, like Piper and Sproul and MacArthur, etc. So just to say that it's not as easy as just saying, well, you know, only outliers hold to, you know, this position, pretty much everyone. No, it's an area of disagreement among conservative, orthodox scholars, Right. And what I want to show you is that both interpretations can actually marshal strong evidence from the passage to support their position. All right? In other words, I want to point out that as you work through this, it is not an easy question at all. It's difficult. And I'm going to tell you where I land and why, but it's it's not easy. And the first thing I want to do is I just want to show you Evidence which supports the interpretation that Paul was speaking of his experience as an unbeliever. In other words, here he's actually talking about his experience, yes, but his experience before he was saved. Why would some people think that? Well, for some good reasons. But Paul says in verse 14, I am of flesh. Now think about that language, because in chapter 8, verse 9, Look what he says in verse 9 of the next chapter. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So on the one hand, he says here of himself in chapter 7, I am of flesh, sold under sin. The next chapter, he speaks of believers and says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So that would seem to indicate that he was speaking as an unbeliever here in verse in chapter 7. Another, he says that he's sold under sin. There again, verse 14. But back in chapter 6, do you remember how many times he had talked about how he was freed from slavery to sin? Right? Freed from bondage to sin? So if you look back at chapter 6 verse 22 but now that you but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God. So chapter 7 he talks about himself as being sold under sin, but chapter 6 he talks about himself as a believer or he talks about believers as being set free from sin. Another another issue or piece of evidence Paul says in verse 18, says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Okay, but you remember studying chapter 6, where he had gone to great lengths to say, hey, don't use your body, the members of your body, to serve sin, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not rule over you, right? For you are not under law, but under grace. So there in chapter 6, 12 through 14, he describes them as being free from the dominion of sin and able to obey God. Here he says, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. How does that gel um, if he's talking as a believer? And Paul said in verse 25, He said, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Three verses later in chapter 8, verse 2, he says, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Verse 25, he says, I serve the law of sin with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 2, he talks about how in Christ he's been set free from the law of sin and death. A little bit more of a broad-based argument in this passage that we're looking at, chapter 7, 14-23, Paul described his struggle against the flesh. No mention of the Spirit. Right. The next chapter, however, chapter 8, he describes the believer's ability to overcome the flesh by the Spirit. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Whereas in chapter 7, he describes himself as sort of like, you know, sin dwells in his flesh. He's sold under sin, unable to do the things he wants to do. Chapter 8, he, just, he seems to be describing a new, our new reality. Um, you could interpret it that way, in other words. There's no mention of the Spirit here. That's kind of odd. And if, a couple of other pieces of evidence. In seven, chapter 7, verses 14 to 20, so particularly those verses in our text, some would argue that he seems to describe more than just a struggle against sin, but he seems to speak as if he's defeated by sin, right? That language, I do not do what I want. The very thing I want, I, uh, I do. The very thing I hate, right? I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So some would argue, look, he's speaking about a struggle, more than just a struggle, but as if he's defeated, Whereas in chapter 6, the chapter before this, chapter 8, the chapter after this, he speaks as one who has been set free from sin and who is able to obey, right? So do you see, these are all difficult (laughs) parts of the passage to reconcile with him speaking as a believer. Another thing I would mention is if you say, well, how, how would they interpret the passage then those, you know, like a Lloyd Jones who would interpret it as speaking of, his experience before he was saved. Well, one common way of doing that is if you look back at chapter 7 and you look at verses 5 and 6, right? Chapter 7, verses 5 and 6 says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to sin to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, right? We were living in the flesh and following our sinful passions, bearing fruit to death, but now we are released from the law and serve in the new way of the spirit. What some have argued is that, okay, what he describes in verse 5 is then explained in the rest of the chapter, verses 7 all the way through 25. And then what he describes in verse 6, right? But now we are released from the law. That's what he describes in chapter 8, 1 through 17 or whatever. So they would argue that 5 and 6 is sort of a summary that is then fleshed out in greater detail such that verses 7 through 25 sort of focus on describing what it's like when you're living in the flesh, Whereas verses, verse 6 anticipates what he's going to describe in chapter 8. So my point in pointing all this out is just to show you that there's actually a lot in the text that you know people who say, oh, he's talking about his experience as an unbeliever. There's a lot in the text to support that, that interpretation. It's, it's not easy. But what about the other interpretation? You know, the one held by guys like Piper and Sproul and, you know, Charles Hodge and John Murray and all these guys that we respect going back into the early church. What about this interpretation that he's, no, he is speaking of his experience as a believer. How, what would support that? Well, for one thing, there is a very striking change in verse 14. Look at it. In verse 14... All of a sudden, he starts speaking. He switches from past tense to present tense. So, first, verse 14, he says, I am 
of the flesh sold under sin. I do not do what I want. And that, that is a switch. Before that, he'd been talking about in the past tense. So that switch from past tense to present tense, he'd say, well, at face value, that seems to mean that he is speaking about his present experience, right? If you have Paul saying, I, me, and he says, start speaking in the present tense, well, that would seem to indicate that he's speaking about his experience right then and there, right? In, in the present, um, which would mean he'd be speaking as a believer, right? It'd be a natural way to understand the passage. More than that, look at these in striking descriptions, right? Verse 16, he talks about, I agree with the law. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 18, he talks about, I have the desire to do what is right. Verse 19, he talks about, I want to do good. I do not want to do evil, right? Verse 15, he talks about hating that which is evil. But in chapter 8, verse 7, right, if you go over the next chapter, look what he says in chapter 8, verse 7. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there he talks about unbelievers being hostile to God, not submitting to his law. So if he was speaking as an unbeliever, how could he say, I agree with the law. I delight in the law. I want to do God's law. That really doesn't seem to fit with the description that he says in the next chapter of those who are in the flesh, right? Unbelievers. So these would clearly support a regenerate heart, right? A heart that is now loves God's law. Also, Paul describes this intense battle within his soul. And, and then between himself, right? I, I delight in God's law. I want to do God's law, right? Himself, right? So he describes this battle between himself, who, who does want to obey the law, and then between that and sin, which is in his flesh which does not want to obey God, right? So I want to do the law, but that sin which dwells in me, in my flesh, hates the law, doesn't want to do the law, right? Now, that kind of inner conflict doesn't seem to fit with the description of an unbeliever that you have elsewhere in Romans, right? So, for instance, um, if you were to just go back to Romans uh, chapter 1, and you were to look at, let's just look at the last part of that section, right? Where uh, in um, verse 32, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them, right? Or switch over to chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. You know, no one seeks for God. No one understands. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. And then it's, he describes their willingness, right? They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes, right? If the unbeliever is in this condition where they, they heartily approve of doing what's wrong and they are swift to do wrong, they don't have fear of God, right? If that's the condition of the unbeliever, there's no conflict there, right? <laughs> it's not like they really want to obey God's law, but there's this sin. No, it's like they heartily approve of doing wrong. And in other letters too, you think of the description in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he talks about, you know, we were dead in our sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, um, who is at work in the sons of disobedience, right? Indulging the passions of the flesh by nature, children of wrath. There's no conflict there. It's not like you're dead in sin, but you really love God's law and you want to obey it. You just can't do it, right? So it doesn't seem like this conflict he describes fits other descriptions of 
an unbeliever, which where there is no conflict. In fact, you would probably say that one of the differences between when you before you were saved and when you were saved is you might have had some sense of guilt, but you didn't have the same type of conflict that you had when you were born again, right? All of a sudden, now when you sin, you hate that, and you can't. It's a it's a huge battle in your soul, and you want to do what's right, and you're repentant before God. But and that's the type of conflict he describes. How could that be describing someone who's not a believer, right? A couple other pieces of evidence. If Paul is if Paul was describing the internal conflict that he experienced as an unbeliever, that wouldn't really fit with Philippians 3, 4 through 6, where he describes himself as confident that he was keeping the law before his conversion. Flip over to Philippians 3 really quick. Here is a passage where Paul describes his life as a Pharisee before he was saved, right? And he says in in verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was how he viewed himself before he was saved, right? That doesn't seem to fit with the description in Romans 7 where he says, you know, I delight to do the law of God, but... I want to do it, but I find that I can't do it. So picture Paul as a Pharisee. Did he view himself that way? Did he view himself as wanting to obey God, but not being able to do it? As to the law, I was blameless, right? That, that was his mindset. He, he thought he was in the right. So again, if he is describing his experience before he was saved as an unbeliever, it doesn't seem to fit, right? Where's the conflict in Paul? Finally, it's a very interesting text. Galatians 5.17. Turn to Galatians 5.17. And if someone would read this text, that would be great. Uh, In fact, start in verse 16. Just read 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Ah! Does it... So first of all, is Paul here talking about the experience of a believer or an unbeliever? There's really no question here that he's speaking of a believer, right? And yet, did you recognize the same notes? I mean, you could have pulled that, these two verses and stick them in Romans 7. It's the same language, right? Do the things that you don't want to do, right? keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he's describing it as this is the experience of the battle between the flesh and the spirit within a, within a believer, right? The, the battle between the spirit, the, uh, the spirit of God in a believer and his remaining corruption. So that to me has always been a huge factor in interpreting Romans 7 because I think, you know, Paul here seems to tip his hand. Like he seems to be showing, yeah, In Romans 7, he was talking about his experience as a believer because he he describes it again in Galatians 5, and there it's clearly of a believer. Also, look at verse 25. If you go back to Romans 7 for a moment, Romans 7, and look at verse 25. So let's start at verse 24. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, you have a sandwich there. You know, he speaks as a wretched man. He, and he speaks of his struggle in verse 25 of, you know, serving God with his mind, but with his flesh serving sin. And then the, right in the middle of that, he's, he confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, right? It's pretty hard to see how he could not be... It, he seems to stick that confession of Christ as Lord right in the middle of those descriptions of his experience of conflict, right? That would indicate that he's speaking as a believer. An unbeliever is not going to confess Christ as Lord in that way. Also, finally, the experience that Paul describes in verses 14 through 25 seems to fit well 
with his larger theology of this now and not yet way in which God has provided us with salvation in Jesus. In other words, it's begun. We have new hearts. We are a new creation, right? But we still have a sinful nature, right? And that sinful nature is why we can't live perfectly righteous lives, right? Because part of us is still unredeemed. This is stuff that he talks about in other places, like Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Do you remember? Put off the old man, put on the new. There's that same conflict, right? You know, abstain from the desires of the flesh, obey and follow the spirit, Galatians 5. So if you view his description in chapter 7 as a description of his experience as a believer, that actually fits well with those other passages where he describes a sort of tension between the work of God already in his life and his remaining continual struggle for sin with sin such that he longs for that future final redemption, right? Okay, so let me just tell you where do I land on this question. First of all, I want to acknowledge it is a very difficult interpretive question. And that's why I have commentaries on my shelf and, you know, look, some of them you open up and they take one position and some of them you open up and they take the other position. And there are strengths and weaknesses to both views. But in the end, my feeling is that he is speaking of his experience as a believer because that interpretation is less problematic. It seems to me there's less problems with that position than there is with the other position, right? I can see where they're coming from with the other position. There are some difficulties there. But it seems to me that the difficulties on that side are far greater than the difficulties that you would have on the other side, right? So I do believe he's speaking as a believer in this text. So this is essentially, I interpret Paul as speaking of his experience of a believer, but recognizing there are some significant difficulties with this view. Okay, so we're out of time. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to spill this over into the next time, and we'll get into Romans 7 and walk through it next time. I don't, it won't take the whole class, so I will have something else planned. But I want to just open it up. Any questions on what we talked about? Because it's important. This particular section of Romans is probably one of the most interpretively difficult. There are other passages, obviously, that are very difficult too. Romans 9 and Romans you know, 11 about Israel. And, but this one is where you see a lot of Interpreters split even within our camp, right? So, any questions about this? Yeah, Linda and then Ash. Thank you for presenting this with so much integrity. Well, thank you. For putting this together. Oh. Well, praise God. Thank you. Yeah. I enjoy it, but there's a sense in which I go, are they going to enjoy it or is this going to be too much? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sorry, Ash. I'll get get to it. The problem with the first view that at least the idea of sin is perfection. With the first view. The one you, the one you talked about first. Right. Yeah. He's speaking of an unbeliever. And that as a believer, then, would they be saying, okay, like Mark, the people who took the other view, would they be saying that there is no conflict in a, in a believer? No. I've heard, yeah. I've heard my own family members argue over this point many times. And mm-hmm. Those were of a charismatic position, took the position that A, you could lose your salvation and right. you should follow God. If you're walking in the shouldn't sin. I, I don't think that, you know, you take like all those guys that I mentioned who take the interpret as speaking of as an, un, as an unbeliever. And part of and the main reason why is because there's just a lot of texts in there that seem to not fit with the description of a believer, they sold under sin, not, I want to do the law of God, but I, I find that I cannot do it. It would seem overly pessimistic, right? And, and, but they wouldn't deny that there's a conflict, right? Because, you know, even in the next chapter, Paul says, clearly speaking to believers, if you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, right? So there's still a conflict, and also there's plenty of other passages like Galatians 5, you know, if you walk by the spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, but the spirit and the flesh are there and keep you to do to keep you from doing what you want to do. So 
There are other passages. I think that if this passage is speaking as an of your experience as a believer, there's a hesitancy beyond the you know exegetical issues. There's a hesitancy like, wow, that seems too negative, right? Like describes your experience as if you're really still in bondage to sin, right? That you can't win. And so people might see it as encouraging people to just resign. Well, I can't do it, you know. Um, so I think that's more the struggle, more not just not perfectionism necessarily, but the other passages that people look at for perfectionism. Although if you do hold a form of sinless perfectionism, you probably are going to interpret this passage. <laughs> uh, well, that can't be speaking of my experience as a believer, right? And the other thing is a casual Right. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Ashton. Thank you. Uh, very similar question. I think you already answered it, but my question was, those that take the stance of him speaking as an unbeliever, would they, what, what would their views generally be about like the dual nature of the believer. Yeah, and it it just depends on who, you know. If you're looking at people in the early church, they tended to have a much more, like, perfectionistic idea. Like, you know, in the early church, they worried that what would you do if you committed a sin after your baptism, right? (laughs) Well, it's like, hello, this is where Augustine comes in and says, I sin all, you know, sin all the time. But you had people that would wait to be baptized until their death because they thought that you couldn't be forgiven of post-baptismal sins. Well, how are they going to interpret this? Like, their understanding of the conflict with sin in a believer is going to be much lower than, say, like a Luther or Calvin who viewed this as speaking of, of, a, of a believer. And that made sense to them because they were very Augustinian, very much like, yeah, we got remaining corruption. We're much more sinful than we recognize, right? So I don't know if that answered it. It might be confusing. Believer, it's just so encouraging. Right. <laughs> it's, it's so encouraging. <laughs> we, that's the, one of the things we have to be careful of is we so want it to be speaking of a believer, right? Yeah. Because it resonates with our experience. So we have to be careful that we don't just choose that interpretation just because we want it to right. be true. <laughs> but... If it is true, I, I do think it is, then you're right. I mean, it's just like, ah, oh, I'm not the only one who experiences this. This is not abnormal. This, Of course, it's not good, right? That we still have such a struggle with sin, but the Bible understands my struggle with sin. Ah, you know. And it makes you appreciate the Spirit and grace right. a little more. Right, exactly. But you don't feel like... If you resonate with this, the very good I want to do, I do not do, but I see myself continuing to do the very evil I hate, right? You could become so despairing over that and think, something must be wrong with me. I'm probably not even a Christian. But here, Paul pulls back the curtain and says, hey, I experienced that, right? And certainly can't become an excuse to resign to sin, but it gives you encouragement that, okay, like, this is, yeah, this is what we experience. And I'll, I'll you know, we're going to walk through the, pa- the, the passage itself and show what it teaches next time. But just in general, it's encouraging, you know? <laughs> yeah. Gives us hope. Like, ah, okay, I'm not like out there on a limb, you know? So, okay, we're way over time here. Let me, uh, let me close us in prayer. And if you have further questions, please come and talk with me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just um, a chance to walk through this text and to look at a very difficult interpretive question, but hopefully to gain some clarity and and conviction on this matter so that we can properly interpret your word and, and that we can walk through the text next week with some measure of confidence that we understand clearly what it is talking about. Lord, I pray that you would use even a time like this to increase our care that we don't just assume we know what a text means without looking at it closely and considering all the factors that we would approach your word with a with a measure of care but also that we wouldn't lose confidence that your word is clear and that we can understand it 
by walking carefully through it and looking at it. And so we pray that you would really uh, encourage us in that regard too. And we pray that as we study this passage, even again next time, that it would teach us and instruct us about the dynamics of our own heart, that we could understand our own experience as believers through the lens of Scripture in a way that would not excuse our sin, but comfort us in our struggle with sin and also give us hope as we say with Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have begun a good work in us and that despite our current struggle with sin in the flesh, we know that a time is coming when our redemption will be completed and we will no more have this internal conflict. But meanwhile, help us to be zealous to put off the old man, to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And we thank you for your grace that you bear with us in our weakness and sin. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.